0: good morning. Um, my name is Austin Royal. I'm not a pastor on staff of this church. Uh, I do go to church here regularly. Uh, I am the REF campus minister at Austin P. Um, and so delighted to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning we're looking at, well, it's a it's a fascinating story. That's, that's one way I would describe it. Um, it's The story of the Good Samaritan, which I know you know that story. At least you know what the Good Samaritan is, because everyone knows who the Good Samaritan is. They they know that phrase. It's probably, arguably, the most recognizable story in all of Scripture. And and here's why. Because secular culture loves this story. If if you go to the Googles and you type in Good Samaritan, you're going to find tons of news articles on Good Samaritan did this, Good Samaritan did that, Good Samaritan saved drowning cat, uh, Good Samaritan helps old lady cross the street, uh, Good Samaritan, um, you know, changes someone's tire on the highway. It's like, people love this story, and they should, like, it, something in humanity gets excited about this, the, the kindness, uh, the mercy, uh, the service, we look at it and think, man, that's awesome, um, and in the story, uh, a lawyer asks Jesus two questions. Um, the first one, he gets exactly what he expected. And the second one, Jesus flips it on him. Kind of what he tends to do is like, no, you're actually asking the wrong question. What you should be asking is this. Um, and so this is what I to think about. As, we, as I read this text uh, and what comes before the story of the Good Samaritan, um, do you think... Uh, Popular culture has understood this story correctly? Like, do you think they get it right? And I I just want to challenge you to think uh, on the one hand, yes, they're pulling truth out of it, but Jesus has so much more to say. So I hope that we'll actually hear the words of Jesus uh, and see the heart of Jesus this morning. Uh, Let me read the text from Luke 10. Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray for us. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for these words that are true and good. Words that you want us to hear because you spoke them and then wrote them down in the Bible. And so I pray, Lord, that they would both challenge us. Uh, and convict us, and at the same time bring so much hope and gratitude to knowing what it's like to lo- walk with Jesus, to be known and loved by Jesus, and to want to follow him, to want to serve him. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> have, you, have you ever heard of the phrase, you don't know the half of it? All right, so people... Something's going on at work. Something's going on at home. Something's going on at school, and someone comes up and says, "Man, I, I've heard. I've heard what's going on." And they're like, "I've heard it's bad. I've heard whatever." And you're like, "You don't know the half of it." And what are you saying? You're saying, "Yes, you know a little. Something's going wrong," but there's a whole another side. There's a whole another half you don't have any clue about. It hasn't even crossed your mind. Um, a story where this. Famous, famous story. Hardly famous. Famous for nerdy pastors. Um, Charles Spurgeon is, uh, he was this great um, pastor in the 19th century. And uh, there's a story where he had just gotten done preaching, delivered this amazing sermon. He's a great preacher. Uh, and as he usually did, he walked back to the, back of the sanctuary to greet people, to shake people's hands. And this woman came up to him and said, you are the most selfish, arrogant pastor I've ever listened to. And he said, lady, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> and it, oh, what's he saying in that moment? He's, he's saying, yes, you're probably right. I'm selfish and prideful. But if you actually put a microscope on my life, if you actually follow me around, you'd see there's so much more there. That This story of the Good Samaritan is too big. You don't know the half of it. Um, it's this lawyer who thinks he's good, who can recite tons of scripture to Jesus, and Jesus is like, you don't know half of it. And then opposite of that, Jesus says, you want to know how to love people? You don't, you want to know what it's like to actually love and care about someone? You don't know half of it. Let me, let me actually tell you what it looks like. Uh, by implication, Jesus, in this moment, in this story, he's saying we're blind to things. We don't see things accurately. Mainly, we don't see ourselves accurately, and we don't see the love of God accurately. And so, the gospel, the voice of Jesus comes in and says, you think you're good. You don't know the half of it. But it also comes in and says, you think you're a failure? You think you're unlovable? You think no one cares about you? you do not know the half of God's love for you. That's what this story is about. So we're going to talk about two things this morning. Uh, First, the different standards of goodness and love. And then second, the charity of true goodness and true love. So let's look at this passage. Jesus, he's teaching a crowd of people. uh, And a a lawyer stands up to ask him a question. Now, a lawyer, it's not like you think of a, a common lawyer today. Uh, it was a studier of God's word, the law, the, the Torah, the, the, what we would know as the first five books of the, of the Bible, the books of Moses. He was an expert on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so uh, this lawyer, who knows so much about the Bible, stands up and it says uh, he wanted to ask Jesus a question specifically to test Jesus. Um, generally, when when a test is thrown out, an expert is throwing it out to someone to see if they actually know. So, in other words, think teacher testing a student. The teacher knows the answers, and they're wanting to see if the students know the answers as well. Uh, the lawyer intends to test Jesus in this moment to see does does he know what I know? Can he answer what I answer? And this is uh, think about this. This guy probably had. Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. Let's think about that for a second. He probably had the first five books of the Bible memorized. He probably had tons of other portions of the Old Testament memorized as well. Um, and the test is uh, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and Jesus, when eternal life is brought to the table, he immediately begins to talk about the law and love. The law and love. Um, And so I want you to think about that for a second. When you think of eternal life, do you actually, when was the last time you thought about it? Like, what was the last time you thought about is there life after this world? Uh, Possibility of heaven. Uh, The possibility of there being something more than the 70 or 80 years you will live on this earth. And I think if you look throughout human history, that's a pretty important question. People want to know the answer to it. And I think Modern people don't ask it very often. And I just wonder why. Why don't we ask it? Uh, why do we not care? And maybe it's because our lives are so comfortable. We li- like we can live so comfortably today. It's just not that big of a deal. Um, but here's the thing. If you're not wondering about eternal life, you're not going to care much about the law. You're not going to care much about love. You can just live your life however you please. Um, but If you obey God, and you're a good person. Uh, If you you think your good outweighs the bad, then you don't have to worry about the law, right? That's what people teach. You're good, if it outweighs the bad, then you can go to heaven. So you don't even have to think about eternal life and if you're pleasing God, it's not a big deal. But the Bible teaches something very different. Um, What does it mean to be good? What, what does it mean to have true goodness, good enough to enter eternal life? The lawyer says this. He answers the question, Jesus throws it, or asks questions. Jesus throws it right, right back to him. He says, this is the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He nails it out of the park. He summarizes the whole law saying every little detail of the law, all the stuff about like not messing with people's oxen, uh, not harnessing, you know, goats on Sunday, all of that somehow points back to loving God and loving your neighbor, and he nails it. And Jesus says, okay, go do this, and you will have eternal life. Go do it, and you will live. Um, this is why Jesus isn't offering Uh, this other way to salvation. The the Bible, you know, it makes it clear you can't work for your salvation, even though a lot of people teach that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But this is how I want you to think about the law. The law is like playing an instrument. So let's take this piano, for example. Um, There's a bunch of keys on that piano. Uh, There's a bunch of ways you can play it. Some of us can play it, uh, okay, you you go over there, you do a a few keys, you, you knock around, and it makes noise. The piano kind of does what it's supposed to do. But others of us can go over there and make something beautiful come from it. And so keeping the law is like mastering an instrument. For you to keep the law perfectly, you have to play the instrument perfectly. And so this is, you, there's, there's this thing called a scale, a music scale. And all it is is kind of, it's the sequence of pitches, sequence of notes. The scale you probably know best is do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You know that one? That, that's a scale. Um, and you go and you play the notes, and it sounds good. The reality is, like, if you know how to move your fingers, we could teach you that in about five minutes. You could go over there and play it. Um, but it's not a song. It's just a few notes. And I think uh, what we tend to do with God's law is we take the notes we want to play and we say that's what it's like to keep God's law. We're not worried about playing a masterpiece. We just think if I just play a couple of these keys and it sounds okay, like we kind of keep harmony can kind of keep the tune, then we're okay. We're keeping God's law. But to to play that piano as it's supposed to be played, like, you've got to master it. In other words, you're expected to be able to play Beethoven. When God says the law is summed up by loving God and loving your neighbor, that means playing Beethoven over and over and over again, playing Mozart over and over and over again. And I can't do that. And I would expect most of you can't do that. And I would expect even if you can do that now, it took years to get there. It took tons of mistakes, tons of things that were off harmony, off melody, to get to the place you could, which means you have tons of debt. There, there's an Arcade Fire song uh, called City with No Children in it. Arcade Fire is probably my favorite band. I uh, hope you like them. Um, and they, they say this. Do you think your righteousness, do you do you think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? I have my doubts about it. That that is the message of the law. The law is beautiful and good, and at the same time as Dave said, you have to despair when you see it, because it will crush you. You can't keep it. It's going to crush you every time. Listen to what Romans 3.20 says, if I can find it. Uh, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is intended to show you how to live. It's intended to show you what it looks like to love God and love people, and at the same time, it shows you you can't keep it. You can't, and you can keep trying. But this is how you try. You find a scale you like to play, and you say, I'm going to master this scale. And if I just do this, it's going to sound great. If I go play do re mi fa so la do over there, uh, you're going to like it for a minute. But after an hour, it's going to be annoying. If I go over there and play Beethoven, you're going to think it's awesome, and you will listen over and over and over and over and over again. It's not, you're not going to get tired of it. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, but have not love. I'm a clanging gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. No one wants to hear it. Um, so what does this mean? How, like, I just want to ask, like, what, what's the scale that you're playing, that you're content to play? And think, I'm okay if I do this. Um." I think, you know, one of the notes you're probably playing is, uh, I provide for my family. I'm a provider. Um, one of the notes you probably don't care about is being hospitable to outsiders, to new people, inviting people into your home, loving on them. Uh, one of the notes you're probably playing um, is you don't like things like, uh, are. You, let me say this. Uh, I need to say this very carefully. Um, You look at things that you know the Bible condemns, like homosexuality and abortion, and you think, that's wrong, I'm not going to play that tune. But you do not love or care for people that you disagree with. You are free to judge them however you want. That's not love. And yet we think we have the freedom because we're playing this tune that is actually very easy for you to play. And God says, no, no, no. The law is not easy. Keeping my law is not easy. Um, We were created to play Mozart and Beethoven over and over again. That's what we see in the story of the Good Samaritan. But you can't. So here's the kicker, though. That's a lot of bad news. Um, There's plenty of pastors that could walk in here and say, Go be the good Samaritan. Let's pray. You're dismissed. That's not good news to you. So what is the good news? Look at what the the lawyer says in verse 28. The setup for the story. He desiring to justify himself said this, and who is my neighbor? That word justified is very important. Very important word in the New Testament. It's connected to justification. Uh, It's connected to this legal term that says you are righteous, and you and I feel the need to justify ourselves. Why? Because when we see the law, two things happen. One is you either feel really guilty because you think, man, I'm not doing this well enough. I got to do it. I got to do it. Or you get really proud. And you think, I'm pretty good at this. I can justify myself. And that I don't know what the lawyer's feeling, but he's feeling one of those two things. The weight of the law and guilty and thinking, okay, can I actually do this? I don't know if I can. Or he's feeling proud and saying, you know what, I'm actually pretty good at this. Uh, and Jesus, Jesus invites both of those responses into himself. Um, I rarely do this, but I want you to flip to Philippians 3 if you have your Bible, because I want you to see it with your eyeballs. <clears throat> um, there's two things that happen in the gospel of Jesus Christ forgives your sins. Your your sins are forgiven. That puts you back to zero. Here's the problem. You need to get to 100%, which is the other side that is really hard to understand and really hard to believe, but the Bible teaches it. It's the fact that Jesus on the cross has forgiven you, and because of the life he lived, the fact that he had a 100% record when it comes to the law, he was perfect you are justified. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to bring your own merit to God and say, look what I've done. Love me. Jesus loves you, and because he loves you, he gives you his righteousness. Look at verse 8. Three, eight through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For for his sake I suffer the loss of things, all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the powers of resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's talking about the law. It's talking about eternal life. It's talking about the same thing as the Good Samaritan. And he's saying this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness God gives you that depends on faith. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That is the most important thing I will say today. You are righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ, nothing else. You are forgiven. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, like, I know this. This is simple. We don't, we don't walk out the door and believe this. Because here's the thing. When, when you're asking for eternal life, when you're asking for, uh, am I good? You, this is, you're saying, am I okay? Am I okay? Please, someone tell me I'm okay. And I know you wrestle with that. I know you think about that. And we tend to think, I'm okay because I had a good day at work. Like, when things are hard, we justify ourselves and say, oh, it's because, like, I've got a good job. What happens when you don't get the the job, when you don't get the raise? Um, What happens when you walk into a room and you feel so insecure about how you look, Uh, your past, uh, the relationship you wish you had that you don't have? What can you rest in? What can make you say you're okay? Only the love of God. And the thing is, if you know that love, it will free you to live differently in the moment. It will free you to be a person, uh, a different person in the moment. You are justified by Christ through faith alone. Um, And when you know that, all of a sudden, this, this story it, be, it begins to look different because this the story isn't hey go out and be a good person once a year like that, that's the problem with this story is we we think it's extreme um but it actually what and I, I want to talk about that for a minute because uh um, I'm jumping in the second point in case you wanted to know um a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among robbers, was stripped and beaten. The, the trip between Jerusalem and Jericho was about 20 miles. It was about a day's journey back then. Um, and this road was a 3,000-foot descent. So it's like, it's rocky and hilly, and it's windy, and it was a perfect place for robbers individual travelers. And so... The reality is, is this was ordinary. This happened all the time. People traveled back and forth between Jerusalem and Jericho all the time. This wasn't like a crazy, oh, that's never happened before. Like, how many times have you driven by a nearly dead person on the side of the road? It probably has never happened to you, which means there's probably more to this story than helping someone who's dying on the side of the road. Um, because... This would have been so ordinary and common to those who are listening. And I think it's easy for us to dismiss this story, the Good Samaritan story, and think, oh, that's not really realistic. Like, Jesus did not really mean it. It's so extreme. That would never happen. But I want you to think about this. what, like, So wh- where's a place um, you go once a week, maybe a couple times a week, maybe once a month, where you encounter people who are needy, uh, who maybe you don't like, Um, maybe if you interact with them, it would disrupt how your day is going. You know you don't want to, so you avoid it. Where's a place you go and do that? Once a week. Church is not the answer. (laughs) Actually, it is. Um, The grocery store is a great place. Once a week, you meet a bunch of people. The person who's always in your way, that slow cart that you just want to get by, it's like, please get out of the way, um, we we encounter needy people all the time, broken people, suffering people, people in hardship. That's what this story is about. And it's an invitation to have mercy. It's not an invitation to choose your neighbor. You notice if you if you read the passage, the the, the lawyer says, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus at the end spins it. Who proved to be a neighbor? who went out into the world and proved to be a neighbor. You don't get to pick who your neighbor is. You are a neighbor. Does that make sense? You, you don't get to decide who you're going to love. You are a lover of everyone you come in contact with, of all the people beside you. The, the term neighbor is like we too often think it's the person who lives beside us. Um, but it's just a proximity of like someone beside you, which means the people right now that are beside you. You're called to be their neighbor. You're called to love them. There's a lot of people in this room that I'm sure you don't like. Like, let's, let's be honest here. We're all people. There's people that are hard to love in this room, hard for you to love. Why? Because we have different personalities. We have different interests. And therefore, awkward moments are created. And so it's like we avoid and we scatter around and, and we don't actually invest in the people, even in this very room. It's like, if we're not doing that, how are we going to do it out in the world, whether it's at work, uh, with the 18-year-old enlistee who's always doing stuff that you know he shouldn't be doing, he's always messing up, what does it look like to actually love him? Um, what does it look like to love, uh, you know, in the moments where you have to go to your child's school and you don't want to interact with the teacher, maybe it's hard, it's weird, Um, What does it look like to actually love them, show them the love of Christ? Um, This story is, it's, it is extreme in some ways, but it's also, it's intended to call out religious people, spiritual people, because we're the ones who think we're playing the right tune, and we've just shrunk the tune to like three, four, five, six things, notes that we like to play. And God is saying, no, 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 you, that's not how it works. That's not how love works. Um, and so this is how the story goes. A man is beaten, and then two men walk by, two very religious men, uh, and they pass by. And then a third walks by, and he helps. And it, the, the the characters are very significant because the priests and Levites, they're the religious people. You're thinking, oh, they're going to help. Um, but they don't. And it's so, like, why do you think they didn't help? What? What's a good reason to walk by a man dying on the side of the road, seeing him in all his need, and saying, not going to look. I'm going to keep walking. What's a good reason? Like, that? commentators are pretty, like, they, they're, You know, they're trying trying to help them out. Like, one of the things that's uh, always thrown out there is um, uh, the impurity of touching uh, a dead body. It's like if a priest did that, a Levite did that, they'd be unclean. Um, And so the theory is, the idea is they would be unclean and they couldn't do their priestly duties back at the temple. They couldn't do their Levitical duties back at the temple. But here's the thing. It was like a seven-day period. So in other words, they would have missed their rotation that week and they would have been fine the week after. And so it's like, oh, they didn't do it because of that. Well, that's not a great reason. Um, But if you think about it, if you don't, if you show up to work late, uh, if you miss an opportunity to do what you're supposed to do, do the people around you like it? Do they get frustrated with you? Uh, do they shame you? Do they make you feel guilty. So maybe they were thinking about what all the other people would think if they if they touched this guy and they missed their job. Um, <clears throat> another thing is like, what what if there was other robbers waiting? It's kind of scary. the The idea that there's a lot of fear with helping this person. Um, what could what else could happen? It's like it's understandable. There's there's understandable reasons to walk by, sort of. Um, I was talking with this passage. Uh, with a group of students about two months ago. And there's this sweet little girl uh, who's never been to church. She's an atheist. Uh, She comes to I don't know why. She just does. Um, But uh, I just threw this out to students. Why do you think they didn't stop? And they were kind of throwing out some classic reasons, trying to think through it. And towards the end of it, kind of sheepishly, shyly, after everyone had quieted down, she was just like, what if they didn't care? What if they didn't care? The religious students in the room know they can't say that. But what if they live it out every day? What if we live it out every day? Now, when... I think the nature of love is it takes time and energy and resources. It takes moments of compassion. I mean, that's what's fascinating about this story. Whenever Jesus sees someone in need, it always says, and the Lord felt compassion on him. It's what the Samaritan said, or it's what it says about the Samaritan. If you know anything about a Samaritan, you know the Jews hated them. They were their arch enemies. <clears throat> they were seen as this inbred group that resisted the Jewish religion and turned their back on it. They ran away from God. They deserved death and nothing else. <clears throat> They're little, like, street rats. Um, they hated them. It's, it's kind of awesome. Uh, in John 8, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and the Jews are ticked off at him, and they call him a Samaritan and then tell me he's demon-possessed. Okay, It's awesome. Um, <clears throat> so when, when a Samaritan is introduced as the hero of the story, everyone's jaw would have dropped, and they would have been like, no way. But so here's the thing. Don't even think about it. Like, let's listen to what he does. Uh, a Samaritan was journeying, verse 33. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, uh, take care of him, and whenever you, whatever more you may spend, I will repay you when I come back. Like, listen to the layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of care. But the moments where it's like, you've done enough, go home and be with your family. Uh, you've done enough, stop spending money on him. Um, He's pouring out resources, oil and wine to help cover with the wounds, to ease the pain. Um, He's probably taking the shirt off his back. Uh, He's putting him on his own docking in in the midst of a hard journey. He's going to the hotel, the inn, and staying with him, tending to him. And then the next day, after caring for him all night, he pulls out two months' worth of money and says, here, take it, tend to this man. And when I come back, if it's been longer than two months... I'll keep caring for him. I'll keep paying for it. Um, The layers of time, energy, and effort that are being put forth. Why? In the name of love. The name of loving neighbor. This isn't a question. This response by Jesus isn't a response to how do you get eternal life. It's a response to who is my neighbor. What does it actually look like to love? And so the question is, have you ever done anything like this? Like, you you can put yourself in this story with any character except the Samaritan. You can't. We don't do this. We don't do this with our spouse. We don't do this with our little children. Because we will love and have the patience for about 30 minutes, maybe two hours, and then we'll just drop it and say, screw it. We have those moments all the time. And, and those are moments where, think about this, we can say, I love my spouse. I love my child. Are you loving your spouse on Monday morning at 6 a.m. when you haven't had your coffee yet, you didn't sleep well, and she's asking you tons of questions? Do you love your spouse in that moment? Uh, I love my children. Do you love your children after the end of a long day where you feel like you've worked so hard, you've gotten so much done, you just want to sit around and they're coming up nagging, asking you to play? Do you actually love them in that moment? Because there's a general idea of this is what love is, and then there's very specific. And the very specific looks like Beethoven, not chopsticks. And those are the moments where we realize, no, we don't actually love. We need the mercy of Jesus Christ. We need a Savior to come and pluck us out of the ditch, love us where we are so that we actually experience love and we know, oh, this is what I like to love people. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus came down out of heaven, lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserved. Why? Because he loved you. And it's not just like this general thing. It is very specific. He meets you. In the dark places of your life, the insecure places, the places you don't want anyone to see, the places where you feel most needy, Jesus comes in and, and grabs hold of you and changes you. And it's when you realize that you're loved in those places that you will begin to actually want to love other people. Like that's the thing about this story. It is so beautiful, but none of us really want to do it. And we want love like this. We want to to be someone who is a lover like this. But in the moments when it comes up, we run away from it. It's like the only thing that's going to make you lean into this is Jesus experiencing the love of Christ, knowing how he loves the unlovable, loves the needy, loves the broken, loves people who cannot in any way work for their salvation, please him with anything they do. He comes in and he changes their hearts and they become lovers. They become neighbors to the people beside them. Um, uh, I will close with this. Um, There is, not because, yeah, I was on a mission trip one time, not a Good Samaritan mission trip. Um, There was this girl who's a couple years older than me, who I hadn't been around that much, but kind of knew she was loud and didn't really like her. Um, uh, We were on this trip together, and we decided, both of us, without talking about it, that we hated each other. Um, It was very mutual. Um, And here's the thing. Hate's a strong word, right? People, students, when I say hate around students, they do not like it. Because they're like, oh, no, they're frustrating. I'm impatient with them. I don't hate them. But it's because the law says when you hate someone in your heart, you murder them. And they know that. And so they're like, no, I don't do that. But I really wish I never had to talk to them again. Uh, they might want to throw up when I see them. It's like, that's hate. Let's let's call it what it is. Because if you don't call it what it is, you're never going to turn to Jesus. And so I hated this girl. And um, and i don't remember why but we you know months after the mission trip i don't know if it was me or her or the pastor on our trip but like we for some reason we decided we we're going to talk about it we we're going to talk about the fact that i hated her and she hated me and there is something very powerful about saying this is who i am i'm sorry i want to change will you please forgive me and to receive that from someone else, but to also get to know them and to realize, oh, she's different. She's loud and obnoxious and I don't like it, but there's actually beautiful things about her. And we got to know each other and we became friends. Enemies who hate each other became friends. Why? Because the gospel was alive in both of our hearts and we moved towards each other and we talked about it and we leaned into the righteousness of Christ the only place we could say, you know what, I can admit and be myself and be accepted. That's what the gospel will do for you and you and you and you and you. And the question is, how do we actually apply this? That stage of life is very important with this. Some of you have a ton of kids and you don't have a lot of free time. Um, you're overwhelmed all the time. I think part of it is like maybe you should ask for help. Lean in and ask someone to come in to your neediness. I think that's part of the story. The other part is like, okay, where can I lean in? Where can I move towards people that are hard to love? Because they're everywhere. They're all in this room. And what does it look like for me to actually give up time and energy and resources to do that and to do it well? Um, I hope that you will pray and consider those things. uh, Because, yeah, the gospel not only invites us into it, it calls us to it. We're called to follow Jesus, called to meet people in the ditches and love them there. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word uh, this morning uh, that is uh, awesome and challenging. Uh, We want to run and jump into it, and at the same time, when the moments come, we walk the dance of, ah, do I have much time and energy to do this or not? And it's so easy for us to just walk by. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts. Show us the ways that you accept us uh, and allow us um, yeah, to embrace uh, the love of Christ and to run with it. I pray, Lord, that as we do that, you would transform relationships, turn enemies into friends, uh, turn people that we see as needy and are judgmental towards into people that we love and care for. And a pray less in Jesus name, amen. <clears throat>